0: Welcome campers. That's Genevieve. And that's Caitlin. And we have an absolutely wild case for you today that we honestly can't believe we'd never heard of before. And it happened just a stone throws from where we live. So close, in fact, that we personally know folks who still have memories of when the double murder of two high school sweethearts, Michael Morrison and Deborah Means, On their own prom night in May 1969, destroyed forever the innocence of the small, quiet town of Muscoota,
1: Illinois. In researching this two-parter episode case, we relied heavily on local newspaper articles, but most importantly, on a fantastic memoir written by Michael Morrison's own younger brother, Ed Morrison, who not only endured the unthinkable nightmare of losing his older brother, but went on to write an in-depth book chronicling his nearly 50-year journey to not only understand the truth of what happened, but why, on that fateful summer night in May 1969. Lights out, campers! Oh man, the mountains call my number one.
0: On May 7th, 1969, a state trooper rapped his knuckles on the window of the car he'd just pulled over for speeding, coming from the direction of East St. Louis. When the window rolled down, a teenage boy, who was visibly shaken, told the officer he'd been speeding because he was distracted, and was distracted because he was so rattled by what he'd read in the paper that morning. that The bodies of two teenagers had been found brutally murdered after they'd never came home from the Muskuta High School prom. And, quote, he may know a connection with the murders.
1: It's also very telling of the era that he was rattled by what he read in the paper that morning, and he was 18. <laughs> An 18-year-old would never <laughs> say that today. Meanwhile, like, we'd
0: be shook seeing the headline on, like,
1: Shook at what I Insta. saw on TikTok,
0: yeah. Hashtag dead. <laughs> Hashtag
1: death. <laughs> <laughs> At police headquarters, the 18-year-old, named Bob Shea, told the following horrifying story to a room full of curious officers. On April 25th, barely two weeks prior, he had been at a dance in the small town of Breeze, Illinois. The girl he had gone to the dance with was anxious because her car had been giving her trouble, so they left the dance a bit earlier than normal, around 10 p.m. As they were just heading out of town, they saw car headlights flashing off and on over and over just behind them. Bob thought it was a police officer, so he pulled off into what he thought was a driveway, but it wasn't. It was a dead end. And before y'all start thinking, uh, Bob, how could you possibly confuse a driveway with a dead end road? Remember, this is rural farm country and driveways are often short, like gravel or dirt roads that go on for little ways, then open up in front of a farmhouse. So this being a driveway wouldn't be unusual at all.
0: Once Bob and his date came to the dead end, the car that was behind them pulled right up to their bumper so that they couldn't back out. Mm. Uh, nope. <sighs> A man stepped out of the car and approached Bob's window, pointing a gun directly at them. He had ordered Bob to shut off the car and hand him the keys, then directed Bob to lie down in the trunk and locked him inside it. From the darkness of the trunk, a terrified Bob heard a muffled yell and felt the car shaking. After a few minutes, the man took Bob out of the trunk and led him around to the other side of the car. He opened Bob's wallet, took five dollars out of it, then handed it back to him, then took and kept the entire wallet of the girl Bob was with.
1: So that was not a ticket-writing protocol, I'm going to (laughs) assume.
0: I want to guess not. I mean, I know it was 69, but I don't think the ways have changed that
1: much. No. Just walking straight up with the gun pointed directly into the window. License
0: and registrations, please. Oh, my God.
1: Holding the terrified teenagers at gunpoint... The stranger then ordered Bob to strip completely naked and gave them instructions to perform sex acts on one another while he took photographs. Bob later told police that he and the girl had done everything the stranger had told them without any resistance, saying, quote, the only thing that kept us alive was following his orders. When an officer asked Bob If you saw this person again, do you believe you'd be able to identify him? Bob said without hesitation, yes, sir.
0: Four days earlier, Muscoota High School was gearing up for its biggest night of the year, prom. This year's theme was moonlight and roses. And the girls of the junior class had spent weeks making hundreds of paper roses for a photo archway. And had constructed a giant moon out of a cage ball and aluminum foil to hang from the ceiling and reflect the glow of blue spotlights. It was 1969, so powdered blue tuxedo jackets, Mm. floor-length pastel gowns, and white elbow gloves were the must-have formal attire. A senior named Michael Morrison, who went by Mike, worked a shift at his after-school job bagging groceries before coming home to put on his tuxedo and head out to pick up his girlfriend. A spunky and beautiful sophomore named Deborah Means, who went by Debbie.
1: Mike and Debbie were the epitome of an it couple. They both had these almost magnetic personalities that drew people to them, and to each other. They met in the summer of 1968, when Debbie was a freshman and Mike was a junior, and it was Debbie who had first noticed Mike who occasionally went on dates with girls but was much too preoccupied with school and sports to have a serious girlfriend. But Debbie would soon change that, when she thought Mike was cute and pressed his little sister Cecilia to introduce them. One afternoon, when they were walking around on the base where Debbie lived and Mike worked at the base commissary, Cecilia saw Mike across a parking lot and pointed him out to Debbie. Debbie apparently started singing out his name aloud enough to get his attention. And when he yelled, what? Debbie clutched her hands to her chest and pretended to be mortified that Mike was yelling at her. (laughs) Then the three of them went to a nearby bowling alley and the rest was history. In Mike's senior yearbook, Debbie wrote, the best thing that ever happened to me was meeting you.
0: Mike and Debbie were both strong-willed and stubborn, and were one of those couples that were quick to argue, but just as quick to make up. Mike took his grades incredibly seriously and was getting ready to graduate as co-valedictorian with several college academic scholarships. He was also a varsity athlete who played football and basketball and had committed to playing football for Southern Illinois University Carbon Again, weird, because that's where my sister went. It's so weird.
1: Yeah, that is super weird.
0: Ugh. He had a very tight group of guy friends who called themselves the love brothers. (laughs) The love brothers. Gosh, boys are fucking weird.
1: They are super weird.
0: (laughs) And he was adored by his four younger siblings. He was tall and handsome, hardworking and super book smart. But his brother Eddie and his friends would often tease him that when it came to common sense, he was a bit lacking. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes found basic tasks around the house be a challenge
1: that's hilarious <laughs> i can just see that now oh, like yeah mom uh i need to iron my shirt and she'd be like um the ironing board it's literally is literally right, right, right there. there be like um how do i open it you literally just pull the legs open um how do i turn on the iron and she'd be like, like oh, for then, fuck's babe. sake like, like just let me get out of my way
0: yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> yep but to his credit, he also knew how to have fun, and he and his friends apparently got the guys at Muscoota High School to participate in something they called Fat Legger Day.
1: Fat Legger Day?
0: Fat Legger Day. <laughs> <laughs> Which was their way of pushing back against the dress code that said students couldn't wear bell-bottom jeans by going to a secondhand store and purchasing huge pairs of wide leg trousers that were the exact same kind the school admin's would have worn when they were their age as a way to point out how ridiculous the quote-unquote no bell-bottoms dress code was apparently this drove the principal crazy
1: that's fantastic what in the hell (laughs) that's hilarious fat legger day (laughs) bell bottoms just just gonna call that but like every day is fat legger day Mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. you have a thick booty and legs Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm fat legger day That's amazing. The Morrison children grew up being each other's best friends while the family moved quite literally all over the world, wherever their father was stationed as a chief master sergeant in the air force. Mike respected his dad very much and his dad was extremely proud of Mike's grades and his athletic achievements. But at the same time, He put an immense amount of pressure on Mike and his siblings to perform. He was an incredibly strict and hard-edged disciplinarian with the classic, my way or the highway, if you don't like it, get out attitude. Whenever he was displeased with his kids, his anger was swift and severe. We could spend an entire episode discussing the Morrison family dynamics, and we highly recommend you check out Eddie Morrison's memoir, Bad Moon Rising, for an in-depth look at Mike's childhood. But we think it provides a pretty clear picture of the vibes of Sergeant Morrison, that he would routinely beat Mike and his brother Eddie with a belt if they so much as made a sound during Catholic Mass. And he would refer to his wife, not by her name of Anne, no no, apparently he would call her woman and say things like, woman iron my shirt, woman bring me my shoes. One time, he even slammed his son Eddie, Mike's little brother, into a wall because he didn't get up from the living room sofa to get ready for bed fast enough to his liking. But of course, this level of brutal, air quotes, discipline that we would certainly call abusive today was written off as just being a different time.
0: Mm.
1: Can't say I'm a huge fan of Chief Sergeant
0: Morrison. Mm-mm. I even get offended when people just don't name their dog. Dog, dog, yeah. come, come here. here. It's Cat, come here.
1: it's very dehumanizing. Like you, that is your wife and the mother of your children. That is,
0: ugh. Mm-mm.
1: yeah, Mm-mm. that's not okay.
0: Fortunately, Mike's mom, Ann Morrison, very much balanced out their father's authoritarian ways by being a kind and calm presence who embraced and welcomed everyone. And the air in the Morrison's little home in Muscoota, Illinois, was much easier to breathe when Sergeant Morrison would be away several months at a time on deployment.
1: No shit.
0: I can... I could see why.
1: Because the 12-year-olds aren't having to worry about having their heads slammed into a wall.
0: Anne had a profound and unwavering faith that everyone who knew her admired. But she also knew how to ease tension with humor. A perfect example of this was once when Mike and his brother Eddie were fighting. Anne would grab her bottle of holy water that was always in the house and would flick it on them while they ran around (laughs) trying to dodge her and she would say... That'll get the devil out of you. (laughs) Soon, they would all be cracking up and whatever they'd been fighting about would be forgotten. Whenever Sergeant Morrison was home, she would encourage Mike and his siblings to just go along and get along. And she would do the same, despite her husband's constant verbal belittling and berating, determined to keep their home as peaceful as possible.
1: She sounds like... Again, very much a that classic mom, wife of her time. Mm-hmm. That was put your head down, do what you have to do. Yep. And apparently in the memoir that Eddie wrote, things when Sergeant Morrison was home would sometimes get so bad that with him verbally abusing her, that one time Eddie actually confronted his mom and said why don't you just divorce dad and even though she was a devout catholic mm-hmm. and for a devout catholic divorce is like i mean it, marriage I mean, is a sacrament yeah it's so it's not an option she said i have thought about it but where would i go and that just broke my heart Ugh. because she would have had no other options because of the role that she was locked into the Mm -hmm. time that I mean it was just like uh, but yeah I would
0: imagine she stayed for her kids
1: oh my gosh yes and I have no doubt that her children turned out to be who they were because she was Mm -hmm. the one who was in their life most of the time and I guarantee you when chief sergeant morrison was a way that their home like they were fighting yes and that they were fighting much less and it was much less tense Mm -hmm. because they weren't walking on eggshells all the time and yeah but people and there's something to be said for like i don't want to spend too much time talking about this but that kind of family dynamic is very interesting to me because Mm -hmm. there was a time when that was kind of upheld as the ideal to have that type of father that you basically lived in fear of but that was highly respected by everybody who knew him which their dad was because he right. was an incredibly highly ranked officer like very straight edge you know
0: and you know in the military and in some jobs you need that yeah but your family is not yeah. a job
1: you've got to be able to put it at the door your
0: children are not your yeah. soldiers yeah your, mm, exactly your wife is not your i'm not to say he was abusive but not your punching yeah. bag verbally or- right
1: right your servant yeah Ugh. and putting that immense amount of pressure on kids to perform because they're afraid of you or because they're trying to live up to some sort of impossible standard mm-hmm. that doesn't do anything but backfire in the long run
0: Yes, it does. Yeah.
1: Caitlin (laughs) looked like she had a personal anecdote to
0: give. (laughs) I'll save it. Um, But yes. But just know you don't demand respect. Mm, Yes. You earn it. And that goes out to my military father. Love Mm. you. Remember that.
1: Yes. Now we need to talk about Debbie means who seemed to have achieved a level of cool at age 15 that most of us still haven't in our 20s, and likely never will. She wasn't interested in being a cheerleader, or as they called them in the 60s, a pom-pom girl. She was always super on point with fashion trends and rock music, and actually helped design and build the sets for high school plays. She was also an amazing piano player and singer and she and her friends loved listening to records together and scaring the shit out of themselves with Ouija boards at slumber (laughs) parties. In Debbie's front yard, there was a massive sprawling tree with huge limbs, and that was her favorite place to hang out with her friends. They literally called it the hangout tree. She always went to her little brother's baseball games, and according to her friends, Debbie was gorgeous, spunky, and playful. And everyone wanted to be like her. But most importantly, she did not tolerate bullies. One time, she and her friends were out walking around their neighborhood, and there was a boy weaving his bicycle back and forth in front of their path in a menacing manner. Debbie had enough, reached out, grabbed his handlebars, and deposited him onto the ground. (laughs) Yes, Debbie. And, Caitlin, this next little bit oh about Debbie, I was just like, man, if there was any doubt that Debbie is our people, mm-hmm. like, no doubt in my <laughs> mind anymore after this. And I know we like to toss around f bombs these days, like birdseed at a wedding. <laughs> I'm proud of that one I came up I'm with. Say
0: that's a, that's a quote <laughs> I want on my wall. F
1: bombs like birdseed at a wedding, and. During this time in the 60s, the F word was super taboo and rarely used by high schoolers. Hmm. But apparently, one day, Debbie and a friend of hers named Barb, who I immediately picture as <laughs>
0: Stranger Things, the
1: only Barb, <laughs> Stranger Things Barb, they were talking about this shitty little boy in their class. And Debbie, while sipping whiskey out of a Coca Cola can, also baller points like our people sipping whiskey out of a coca-cola can call him called him a fucker (laughs) (laughs) and barb was so shocked that she used the f word she just couldn't even speak
0: (laughs) by golly (laughs) debbie And, like, it's even funnier, like, imagining oh. it because her picture of her and her, like, yeah. pretty little flipped out hair. And she's she truly was beautiful. Oh, yeah. The picture Just of Debbie. Just drinking, yes. whiskey, Fucker. Fucker. <laughs> Meanwhile, it kind of makes sense because mm-hmm. I sure do he look like a sewer it. rat every now and then. And it's <laughs> more appropriate for, <laughs> for fucker to come out of my mouth. Oh, but
1: <laughs> It's always great when it comes out of somebody that Honest, looks I unassuming. Think. Yep it's
0: it's like fun, I don't know,
1: but debbie and Mike they seemed fucking cool they
0: really they like they kinda like it said, power couple, yes, very well rounded,
1: but not like the obnoxious power couple, yeah, like like genuinely cool people
0: like no, I'm just not gonna shit talk people i'm just gonna <laughs> i'm just gonna continue, I'm just gonna continue, I won't put myself oh. under that bus, okay. On Saturday, May 3rd, 1969, prom night, Mike left his commissary job at around 5.30 p.m., ran home, and threw on a t- his tuxedo. I wish it was that fucking easy for us girls. I know.
1: <laughs> I've never thrown anything on in my life unless Mm-mm. it was a
0: frown on my face. <laughs> That's just permanently on Yes. Mm. Yes. And drove off in their family's 1963 Plymouth Bel- Belvedere
1: belvedere belvedere i think it's belvedere a plymouth I've never belvedere. heard of that me neither
0: to pick up debbie from her house on scott air force base with his record player still churning out his favorite song from credence clearwater revival quote, don't go around tonight it's bound to take your life there's a bad moon on the rise uh, great song great song very ominous
1: fucking dark foreshadowing Ugh.
0: mike's brother eddie was there too with his own date but the brothers avoided speaking to each other at the dance after getting into a knockdown drag out fight the previous day when his little brother Eddie had caught him wearing a brand new t-shirt that he just bought.
1: <laughs> Listen, I feel that in my soul. I feel
0: like that's like a sisters. Thing. I know. Interesting. That's
1: very that's hilarious because in our souls we feel that having 100%. sisters, but I cannot imagine like like Josh and Jacob, or like Josh and Jacob, sa- like any of them getting in a fight over a piece of clothing. Like no, they don't even know what clothing is theirs half the time. Girl, like Josh they just has know tried that to the put Head on-
0: goes through one hole, arms go out the other. <laughs> like Josh has tried to put on a pair of my
1: fucking shorts before. Like
0: <laughs> I got that picture,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I had to put a star over certain areas because oh gosh let's just say they would not have passed school dress code in this mm. maybe what year no it was the 60s and 70s when denim shorts for men got like well even the basketball like short. the
0: athletic shorts were like the sophie shorts that were popular <laughs> for like us
1: yes Ugh. i like a little bit of men's short Le- above me the five inch seam yeah caitlin is salivating <laughs> But it's got to be just at the right spot like yeah. you don't want anything possibly flopping out mm. but you also need to avoid that uh, skateboarder Bermuda flat shoes Bermuda like ratty Bermuda shorts with the f- like tearing on the they bottom. They just give
0: me Jacob black from um twilight vibes did he wear those yeah you were like cut off jeans oh yeah oh you're
1: right because his clothes were always exploding off of him whenever he turned into a werewolf
0: mm. i mean if that if all men could do that i'd be okay with doing a shorts. But, <laughs> but no no <laughs>
1: certainly not
0: so yeah they were fighting over eddie a stealing shirt. mike's new shirt interesting
1: oh yes yes
0: And they were still pissy with each other about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A day later, also tracks for
0: siblings. (laughs) The students all posed for pictures and drank punch and had a great awkward high school time slow dancing. And at 10 p.m., the dance ended, and Mike and Debbie headed off to meet up with their friends at the private dining room they had rented with 10 other couples at a popular local restaurant in Belleville, Illinois, called The Carriage House's.
1: Oh, does the carriage house still exist? Uh-huh.
0: Holy shit! Or wow. Like it's, Hill- I I, don't, I would assume it's the same building, but yeah. it has the same name.
1: Wow, yeah. that's so trippy. <sighs> we need to go there.
0: Oh gosh. Also, going out to eat at 10 p.m.
1: Yeah, count no. me out. No, even back in the day. Although I have wanted to hit up a Taco Bell, like after a concert or something. That, but works. that's different. You're not going to like a formal sit-down sit down dinner.
0: Yeah. No, ma'am. Mike and Debbie were a bit late arriving to the restaurant, though, because Mike actually got pulled over and given a ticket when a cop saw him doing donuts in the high school parking lot. Oh, gosh. They were determined to have a good time, though, and to not let this dampen in their evening. And yes, Mike getting a ticket had sucked, but he also felt pretty good that the officer who pulled him over hadn't caught on that both he and Debbie were pretty buzzed on the beer and gin they'd smuggled into the prom. <laughs> he, he probably like <laughs> he hits <Yeah. gets> me <laughs> cops is like okay it's prom night Get gone
1: yeah the, the cop probably was fully fucking uh-huh. aware but also it kind of gives you that moment of being like because we all know where this is inevitably heading this is a murder podcast and mike and debbie are the main people in the story but if that cop had he oh. like a he either noticed and then was like oh whatever, they're fine or he didn't notice. But if he had, would have been the kind of cop that would have been like y'all ain't driving anywhere. Like call your parents. I'm
0: and I oh. I like to think that way, but I still think had it gone that way, yeah, the piece of shit still would have found somebody. Yeah,
1: else. yeah, I'm sure you're you're right. Oh man, it's just those little moments of like. Mm-hmm. If something had just gone one degree, it's like the different butterfly the effect. It, it really with is. My mind,
0: I'm just like, oh my gosh, if I hadn't have done this, yeah, that wouldn't have happened.
1: You think about it way too much, and it starts to kind of unravel your reality. It's creepy. Like some, sometimes I even will think about, like, the for example, the internship that I went on where I met my mm-hmm. husband mm-hmm. was. In a state that I would never be Ohio, caught dead guys. in. Yeah, it was Ohio. I have a, no reason to go to Ohio ever, and I had a, like a list of different possible places oh. I could have gone. And if I had just done anything else, my life would be.
0: Where were you? You went to Ohio just to get stuck in Illinois. I went to Ohio, <laughs> which praise Lord. Yes, praise the Lord. Yes, I'm so the glad Lord. You're
1: here. yes. <laughs> but man. Again, try not to think about it too much because then like... No,
0: no, I can't. Yeah. I can't. I'll go crazy.
1: When Mike and Debbie showed up at the carriage house, Eddie was already there with his date. And Mike walked over to him, tossed the ticket he'd just gotten at Eddie and good-naturedly said, Hey, tell mom you got a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie threw the ticket back at him and said, Uh, nah, that's your baby. And with this exchange that only two close siblings can have, the brothers knew they had unofficially made up. After dinner, Mike and Debbie and the rest of their friends left the restaurant and drove together to Debbie's friend Barb's house. There's Barb. Barb. So that the girls could change out of their formal prom dresses into comfy clothes. And Mike swapped out his formal tuxedo shoes for his favorite worn-in loafers. At around 1 a.m., Mike and Debbie hopped into separate cars and everyone headed to the Strip Cuts situated about five miles outside of Muscoota to party. And in case y'all are wondering what the fuck are Strip Cuts, these were abandoned and super deep trenches that had been gouged out of the earth to dig coal many, many years ago. And once the coal was extracted, those big gouges in the earth were flooded with water and around it was like really big rocks and it was kind of hilly and grassy and it was a well-known like hangout hookup mm. spot for young people because adults were like why would we go out there and because it's in the midwest and we don't have any like good bodies of water around uh, especially carlisle Lake. around here yeah carlisle Lake. <laughs> the mississippi oh god (laughs) they're probably like oh it's like going to the beach at night like that was their equivalent of a good time
0: you're ripping on my childhood
1: (laughs) (laughs) i am that lake is i was afraid that i was gonna step on a needle when i went to that lake
0: i was scared i was gonna step on a dead body Ah!
1: anybody local that we've got to listen to this podcast is like (laughs) he's (laughs) talking That out of town or just talk shit about this hey, Carlisle lake.
0: I'm waiting for the day I get a boat or somebody I know gets a boat and I'll be on that lake again oh, yeah. every fucking day.
1: I will eat every complaining word I've ever said and been on that lake with you as much as we can.
0: Yes, ma'am.
1: With a pocket knife in my waistband in case I get tangled uh, up in
0: Yes. Every <laughs> time I would tubing on that lake though, and I like I I I should have an award for how I hung on to those fucking tubes because I refused to get in that water but if I touched that water my fingers and toes curled (laughs) so tight because I was like nothing's going to get me nothing's going to nibble something Like nope. I would literally just sit in a ball floating waiting for them to circle back oh my god
1: anywho now that we know what strip cuts are
0: (laughs) not steak (laughs) no The next few hours at the strip cuts were pretty uneventful. The girls grouped off separately, probably to talk shit about their dates. (laughs) Probably. Probably. (laughs) And everyone stood around joking and sipping beer, having a fun time on the warm and clear summer night. The school year was almost over, and for the seniors, this would be their last year to make prom night memories together. Around 2 a.m., Mike and Debbie were the first couple to leave the strip cuts. They were only about five miles from town, and Mike didn't have to be home until 3.30 a.m. What in the...
1: Yeah. God.
0: Debbie didn't even have a curfew and had plans to stay the night with her friend Tony. But he and Debbie were hoping to get a little time together, just the two of them, after a long evening of socializing with friends.
1: At around 4 a.m. the next morning, Mike's brother Eddie tiptoed up the front porch of the Morrison's house, Hoping to slip into the room he shared with their six-year-old brother Joey, I I like that name Joey. That's, that's that's really cute. Without waking up their mom so that she wouldn't know he was in an hour past curfew, but as soon as Eddie stepped into the living room, he heard his mom's voice floating down the hall from her bedroom. Mike, is that you? No, it's only me, Eddie said. Oh, I'm sorry, Eddie. But I had a bad dream about Mike. I dreamed he drove his car into a concrete wall. I think he might be hurt. And she'd been awake worrying ever since that terrible dream around 2 a.m.
0: Poor mama heart.
1: Yes. I feel so horrible for all of the times that, like, I know me and both of my siblings have given our mom a hard time for the next morning when she's like I can't fall asleep until I hear y'all coming like in the door and we never got home super late nor did we have we didn't have a curfew because we were boring as fuck but like we would get home from going to a movie or something at like around midnight and you know I you think that you're like oh I'm sneaking in the house and nobody knows but like no I know that my mom was fully Mm. awake being like letting us have our freedom and not like calling us Look. but then worrying and I was like oh my gosh I now I I get it I've only I get spent it.
0: nine months pregnant plus the one year Camden's been alive but that's long enough for me to be like I spent all that time keeping you alive yep you're not allowed to just go yep. out and die like it's not allowed <laughs> not allowed
1: you're not allowed to leave my sight nope nope nope. if the retractable leash cannot extend to where you want to go mm-hmm. you will not be going
0: mm-hmm. Not today. Eddie reassured his mom that he was sure Mike was fine, and he'd seen him last at the carriage house with Debbie. He lay down in bed and struggled to fall asleep for hours, overwhelmed with a nagging feeling that something terrible had happened. At seven thirty a.m., he woke up to their mother frantically shaking his shoulder and saying, Get up, Eddie. Mike's not home yet. She instructed him and his little sister, Cecilia, to go to the eight o'clock mass. While she stayed at home to wait for Mike, sleep deprived and hungover, Eddie stumbled the few blocks to church, still with a nagging feeling in his gut. But he reassured himself that when they got home, the family car would surely be parked in the driveway and Mike and Debbie would probably be feeling pretty sheepish and hungover after drinking a little too much and falling asleep in the car. However, that was not the case. Oh, God. It was now
1: about 9 a.m., and Eddie, Anne, and Cecilia, who was actually Debbie's classmate and good friend, started making phone calls. One of Mike's classmates and their next-door neighbor, a girl named Mary Kay, told Anne that she'd heard Mike and Debbie were a part of the group that had headed out to the strip cuts after dinner. Mary Kay had a car, And Eddie and Cecilia immediately ran over to her house, and the three of them sped off towards the strip cuts to look for Mike and Debbie. While Anne stayed home to continue making calls and praying that Mike would pull into the driveway like nothing had happened. For the next few hours, Mary Kay, Eddie, and Cecilia drove over every country road around the strip cuts, along Jefferson Road between Mascuda and Freeburg. And if y'all aren't from the Midwest and need a visual, picture farmhouses spread apart every mile or so, endless cornfields, and at this time of the year, if there was an early corn crop planted, it would already be pretty tall and woods. The three searched every secluded area they knew of until finally they spotted the 63 Plymouth Belvedere just off the road with deep skid marks going for about 60 feet from where it had left the pavement. A tall crop of early corn flanked both sides of the road, and there was a farmhouse about 200 yards away where the car was stopped.
0: As they pulled up alongside the Plymouth, it was immediately apparent to Eddie, Cecilia, and Mary Kay that something was very, very wrong. Both doors of the Plymouth were flung wide open and the keys were still in its ignition. Debbie's prom dress and corsage were laying on the back seat next to Mike's tuxedo, tie, and leather shoes. But Mike and Debbie were nowhere in sight. If they were worried before, that was an understatement compared to now. Mary Kay got a hold of her father, who had grown up around the strip cuts and was also driving around looking for Mike and Debbie nearby. He flagged down the first police car he saw Driven by a state trooper named Dave Young, Dave immediately radioed a deputy who was closer to where Eddie and the girls were waiting by the Plymouth to head over. And the relief that Eddie felt when the deputy rolled up quickly turned to outrage when the deputy barely glanced into the Plymouth, shrugged, and said, "They probably ran off and got married Oh without my their clothes." God, right? Interesting.
1: In the middle of a fucking cornfield, in the middle of nowhere. Oh. Eddie's indignation and efforts to point out that the car keys were still in the ignition and the doors were wide open, plus begging the deputy to check for fingerprints because he was sure that they had been taken, fell on completely deaf ears, and the deputy instructed Eddie to take the car home, telling him that they didn't need it for anything else. Oh my god. So... Eddie, being a 17-year-old, instructed to obey law enforcement, did as he was told. By this time, the news that Mike and Debbie had never made it home from the prom had spread like wildfire, and literal carloads of their classmates and neighbors spent the long, grueling day that remained Combing every square foot of the area, and Eddie, Cecilia, and Mary Kay stuck together and kept searching as hard as they could, delirious with exhaustion, but finally were forced to call it a day once it became too dark to see. As soon as Eddie and Cecilia stepped back through their front door, they locked eyes with their mother as she hung up the phone. Completely calm and matter of fact, Anne said, Eddie, they're dead. They're dead, and I have already forgiven whoever did it. The following morning, at 7.30 a.m., Chief Sergeant Morrison had just sat down at his desk when a messenger burst in and said he had an urgent call from the States. Sergeant, catch the next flight out of here. Your son never made it home from the prom on Saturday. As hard of a man as he was, Sergeant Morrison deeply loved his children, and at these words, his stomach turned to ice. I have two sons who went to the prom. Which one is it, sir? He gasped. Well, I don't know.
0: You don't expect being in the military to receive a phone call from home and hearing news like that, and it's just like, ah.
1: And he was in what was it i think thailand he was on like other side of the world oh, gosh and you're 12 hours ahead also in i'm like illinois time Hwa.
0: stupid <laughs> 69 i'm like how do they call
1: him oh yeah
0: <laughs> i'm stupid
1: well it wasn't 1869
0: <laughs> like i'm literally like wow Le- they're really advanced <laughs> That's <laughs> so <hilarious>. stupid <laughs>
1: But not so advanced enough that the his superior couldn't find out which son it was and poor Yeah, before you poor call Sergeant us gather all the facts. Yeah. Golly. Uh, At least they let him go home.
0: Uh, gosh. Yeah. Also,
1: the mom just I
0: think that's where I just like kinda like my yeah. brain snapped a little.
1: Like that she just said it and she was like I've accepted. Also her saying, I have already forgiven whoever did it. I, I mean. I,
0: and They were too stunned to speak.
1: Yeah. Uh, I am all for people doing whatever they need to do genuinely. If it's what they want to do. To be able to, like, grieve and accept what has happened. And if giving someone forgiveness is what you need to do that to have peace, mm-hmm. then by all means, but if not forgiving is what brings you peace,
0: an eye for an eye, do not forgive. Yep. So on Monday, May 5th at around one thirty in the afternoon, a little Cessna plane hummed back and forth over its designated section of search grid, just a few miles outside of Muscouta. It hovered slowly over the Peabody mine and the surrounding dirt roads and farm fields around the strip cuts when the pilot, Earl de Moronville.
1: I'm going to say de Moronville so we don't say Earl de Moronville.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a weird ass name.
1: De Moronville sounds like some shit that the Wilhelm brothers would say they
0: Literally. were from. <laughs> from I we on de DeMor- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry earl sorry but earl spotted something bright white on the ground in the dense long grass near jack's run road within minutes law enforcement had descended on the site and their worst fears were confirmed literally a few yards away from where eddie cecilia and mary kay had stopped searching the previous day oh Fuck. god lay the lifeless bodies of mike morrison and debbie means Mike was face down, wearing a bright white t-shirt, which is what Earl had seen from the Cessna, and his tuxedo trousers from the prom, with his feet resting in a small stream of water. It appeared that he had been shot three times in the back of the head and had several fresh bruises on his face. His hands were clutching the grass that was still rooted into the ground.
1: that's such a powerful image.
0: Mm. I know every... I mean, every murder that we'll ever describe, I'll say it's brutal, but that's mm-hmm. just like, ah, to shoot someone in the back of the fucking head.
1: Yeah. It's three really, times. Yeah, It screams cowardly. Oh, a hundred percent. It screams super cowardly. Debbie was lying just a few yards away in the grass at the base of a slight incline. She was nude and covered in severe bruising. And had been gagged with her own underwear. And on top of that, her mouth had been covered in white hospital tape. Her feet and hands were tied up together behind her back with clothesline. And more clothesline was wrapped tightly over the hospital tape around her head. And repeatedly coiled around her throat. The coroner pronounced Mike and Debbie dead on the scene and after a four-hour autopsy back at St. Clair County revealed Mike's cause of death to be the two small, whole-caliber bullets and a fragment of a third that were found in Mike's skull, which all appeared to be fired at very close range. Debbie's cause of death was ruled as strangulation.
0: The news of Mike and Debbie's murder tore a deep, raw wound into the formerly innocent small town of Muscouta, which at the time only held around 5,000 people. Mike's brother Eddie recalled years later that for days it was like the town was in shock, and friends of Debbie and Mike remembered students and teachers walked around Muscouta High School like zombies. And no one did anything in class, not even the teachers. They all just kind of went through the motions of the day together in silence. Both Mike and Debbie's homes and yards were constantly flooded with their friends and teenagers. They would sit on the lawn and cry together. Incredibly, Mike's mom, Ann, was often the one holding Mike and Debbie's friends as they broke down and sobbed. Oh, God. Eddie stayed over for days with his friend, Russ, unable to bear the pain of being at home without Mike. And the two of them would take turns smelling a sweater of mics that he'd left in Russ's room oh my God. when he'd been over hanging out just a few days before. Oh, my God. Gosh, as much as we hate our fucking siblings, <sighs> there's just, like... Ooh. There's something within, like, hating your siblings so much that you just like the love is just like yeah. unmatched oh my god <laughs> you can't start <laughs> just, crying because i can
1: oh and then the thought that if i was smelling my sister's sweater as <laughs> of like i've literally cried i'd be like that bitch stole my deodorant
0: a hundred percent or is that my glossy? I No, I'd be going through Madison's <laughs> closet like that's my fucking shirt. <laughs> it smells like her, but that's fine.
1: <laughs> and the, this, the like, no, I know it's, it's sexist just... of me, but like the girl, okay. you know, you think of girls doing that and you're like, whatever. But like boys oh, doing that,
0: exactly what I was thinking. That, like it's just uh, like it's so it disheartening. just
1: like rips your heart out all the more because I think because. Especially, think, in that fucking time when they weren't allowed to show emotion, uh-huh. but that Eddie and Russ were having that experience together. I'm glad
0: that Eddie found Ugh. comfort with Russ, like, in that, like...
1: Yes. And he actually writes in his book that, uh, he was able to grieve and get through those days because of his friends because as much as he loved Mm -hmm. his mom she was having to just fucking hold it together and she was like putting up this strong face and not letting people see her grieve but many years later his sister would tell I can't remember if it's his sister or if a friend of the family told him that and shared that even though like basically she never shed a tear in front Mm -hmm. of anyone, but at night like when everyone went home, that it was for like years after Mike died that she cried herself to sleep every night. And I was, I mean, how could you not? Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how she didn't just completely... That woman as a fucking st- strong. I mean, ugh.
0: yeah, I don't. Like, we'd have to have like a hundred parter episode of us just explaining yeah. how the fuck we would do things yeah. and how we. Like, I just don't understand. And like,
1: I... I wouldn't do. I would. I would be not functioning. From the limited knowledge I have of her, I immensely am- admire her. From the moment that the Cessna pilot spotted Mike's bright white shirt, local law enforcement was thrown into a murder investigation, the likes of which they had never experienced before. State troopers and county deputy sheriffs immediately sealed off all access roads and Surprise! Surprise! Wasted several precious days squabbling over who had the most jurisdiction rights. God, do you give me strength? If there is not a bigger dick swinging problem than amongst oh, right. law enforcement, like I swear, I swear, people have died. I, I don't understand.
0: Like, why can't- th- I mean, I'm sure there's, like, actual reasons, like- Yeah. I don't know, but, like, can't y'all just put like your fucking heads together and Right, like, of- it
1: should take a matter of hours, not days, you know, because, like, days- Also,
0: you already removed the car from the scene. Oh, You my. already botched already this, like- Already fucked the
1: crime scene. <sighs> yeah.
0: Sure, let's wait a fuck another week. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. Finally, two state troopers named Dave Young and Charlie Growl- were assigned to the case in conjunction with the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office under the direction of its Chief Deputy Sheriff Rodriguez, and they threw themselves headlong into the investigation. Desperate to obtain any solid lead or viable suspect, Dave and Charlie logged an incredible amount of hours interviewing Mike and Debbie's classmates, friends, and neighbors in the surrounding area of the abduction and murder scene. They were so committed that the moment they were assigned to the case, Dave and Charlie worked non-stop for three days until finally they were forced to go home on the fourth day, and Dave slept for 24 straight hours. And while all of their initial questioning did not point straight to a viable suspect at first, they did uncover some very interesting information.
0: Mike and Eddie's good friend, Bruce Younger, came forward and told investigators that he'd had a bizarre and terrifying encounter on Prime Night, literally minutes after Mike and Debbie had left together in the 63 Plymouth from the strip cuts. He had left to take his girlfriend, Barb, home around 2 a.m., and at 2.15, he and Barb were kissing goodbye on her front porch, which was set about 100 feet back from the road, when they both heard what everyone at Muscoota High knew as the sound of Mike's car approaching. Because it had a broken muffler and roared roared unusually loudly, if you barely tapped the gas. (laughs) Now that's everybody in their fucking brother's truck.
1: Like, truly. Ugh.
0: Before they'd even seen the car, Bruce said, there goes Mike. And sure enough, a few seconds later, he and Barb both looked and saw the 63 Plymouth heading down the road. With another car that he didn't recognize following close enough behind them that both Bruce and Barb assumed that it must be another couple that they were partying with, that they were all heading back to the base together.
1: Ah. A few minutes later, Bruce left to head home. Driving in the same direction that Mike and Debbie had been when they'd passed Barb's house. All of a sudden, an oncoming car roared out of the darkness, barreling wildly down the middle of the road so fast that Bruce had to swerve to avoid a head-on collision. Heart pounding and adrenaline surging, Bruce kept driving. And about a mile later, his grip tightened on the steering wheel when he noticed red taillights just ahead and off to the side of the road. But since they didn't move as he approached, he assumed it was just a piece of farm equipment, but it wasn't. Ugh. So he literally.
0: He saw like everything. Yeah, basically. he
1: saw and he saw their car like he passed Mike's car mm. that had to be what was pulled off to the side of the road.
0: Almost immediately following what Bruce told law enforcement, another friend of Mike's spilled out an almost unbelievable story to Dave and Charlie, which Mike's brother Eddie would recount many years later. What follows is an excerpt in Bruce's own words. As I remember, after leaving my girlfriend in Belleville, I stopped off to grab a quick pizza to have on my way home that night. I drove out into the country towards home and was about a mile south of Route 177. As I crossed over the little bridge, then made the sharp left turn following the roadway, I saw a car off to my left with the front tires in the ditch. I knew right away it was Mike's car. It being prime night, I figured he probably had too much to drink and turned too early for the bridge, ending up in the ditch. Making that assessment, I figured Mike wasn't aware he could have just driven the car back out onto the road as the ditch was pretty shallow. I knew he had a good sense of humor, so I thought it would be a hoot (laughs) to just drive it out and leave. It would be a heck of a joke. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my (laughs) (laughs) gosh. I backed the car out of the ditch and parked it parallel with the road a few feet off the shoulder. I figured when Mike returned with his friends and found the car on the side of the road, after the shock wore off, they'd all get a good chuckle. I hopped back in my car and headed home, having absolutely no idea... What I just left behind was a crime scene.
1: Oh my god! Holy shit!
0: And it's one of the. Wh- why would you think? Why would you even?
1: You wouldn't even think like, that. <laughs> like you'd have no reason to drunk, think that. He was drunk. What a dumbass. Oh, dumbass! Yeah, that's exactly what was going through his mind. Oh man! And this. Happened a few days later, but apparently, and he was very quickly cleared. Mm -hmm. Bruce was, but there was a couple of days after he came forward and told the story that law enforcement leaned really, really hard on him Mm -hmm. because that sounds it could sound a little sus. And apparently, he was so destroyed when he realized what was going on that when they let him out after they questioned him for like mm-hmm. hours he ran to the morrison's house mm-hmm. and was like sobbing and ran to mike's parents and was like oh, God. I, I didn't do it like i like i pro- like i would never do anything to hurt mike like and he told them everything that like they've been questioning me and like mm-hmm. all of this stuff and and i was just like again that hurt my heart because And then immediately I am just like, well, obviously he didn't do it. Because that, (laughs) meanwhile, crazy psychopaths do that all the time. (laughs) But I just see these, like, kids in my mind. Like, you know, I'm now twice the age of these little boys and having almost twice that age. I'm not not quite there. I was like, I'm doing the
0: math. I'm like, wait, hold on.
1: Okay, I'm not quite there, but I feel like it, and they just seem so young and they innocent, are and that just oh, it just hurts and to your have heart. Something
0: so traumatic happen,
1: and that town was so fucking tight knit. Like it is a, such an example of everybody knowing everybody. Like the man who ran the morgue that was had to go pick up Mike and Debbie and take them to prepare their bodies um, for the funeral. One of Mike's classmates was his son and demanded that his dad let him ride with him to go get their bodies so that he could help.
0: I wonder if that's the mall funeral uh, home because it's very that's possible. one that I've been to a lot.
1: Oh man, it's very possible. But like, it just shows you how deeply connected all of those people were with one another and and if i know i was talking shit on law enforcement and if that's the reason why it took so long for them to get jurisdiction of this case because they Mm -hmm. were like we are not gonna back down and hand it over to the big guys because like these are our people i i get it and like if it yeah i i don't know if that's what happened but just based off of the things we know about the people and the troopers that then didn't sleep for fucking three days or whatever trying to solve the case the minute they got it people just don't do that kind of shit anymore like even just
0: in these small towns it's like we're just uh hop skipping away from st louis that's where the stuff goes down not these small towns over here right even now yeah so especially back then it's yeah. like it's not what you're prepared for, nor is it something you're equipped to truly handle.
1: No, not at all. And now we're going to take a bit of a, uh, a, I don't know, gear shift, road change. I don't even know. My brain is fried at this point. But on Monday morning, May fifth, nineteen sixty nine. So we're now two days after prom. A man named Marshall Wayne Stoffer placed a new water heater part for the mobile home he was servicing on the checkout counter at the Park and Shop grocery store in O'Fallon, Illinois. The owner, named Helen Wombacher, was startled when she looked up and saw that Marshall Stopher's lip was bloody and swollen from a gnarly cut. His knuckles were banged up and his face was covered in deep scratches and gashes. Helen asked him what happened, to which Marshall Stouffer replied, a water heater blew up on me. When Marshall arrived a little bit later where he worked at Scott Mobile Home Sales, his coworker Bill Yao, also noticed Marshall's battered face and said, what the hell happened to you? Marshall said, "I fell in a briar patch and got all scratched up." Bill was no bullshitter and immediately said, "Um, that's no briar patch scratches." Oh my God, this, <laughs> this makes me feel unwell. That's no briar patch scratches. You must have had a hot date over the weekend. <laughs> Okay, let's get feisty.
0: <laughs> I just want to punch people every time we read these. Oh, no. <sighs> Remember at the very beginning of the episode when we told you about the shaken up 18-year-old who saw the headline about Mike and Debbie's murder in the paper and then gave East St. Louis law enforcement a harrowing tale about he and a date being abducted at gunpoint?
1: Hmm.
0: Well... Later that very same morning, the St. Clair Sh- County Sheriff's Office answered the phone and an anonymous man's voice spoke the following bone-chilling words. Quote, I am the one who killed them, and I will do it again. I was bit around the mouth area. Unquote.
1: Weird. Weird thing to close with.
0: Look, there's some weird-ass people out mm-hmm. there.
1: <laughs> the same time... Just across town at 9 a.m., so this is like a little triangle of events happening within like a 30 mile radius of like the same time. Just across town at 9 a.m., Debbie's mother walked to her mailbox and pulled out an unsealed envelope addressed the murdered girl's mother. The envelope contained a handwritten letter and several types of identification cards, all of which belonged to the same name, Mike Morrison. Mm. And that is where we are going to end part one of our coverage of the 1969 Moscuda Prom Night Murders. We are going to be wrapping it up in part two next week, and, yeah, that's about the gist of it.
0: Ugh, I man. think
1: this has been the first case that I've actually cried while we were recording.
0: I've definitely after... cut myself out. No, I think no, I... I've cut us out, like, our crying out of something. Oh, yeah. I do. Uh, no,
1: I did cry during Sierra jogging. I, yes. Yeah, that one destroyed me. Um. And- I Oh, I cried during Juliana Cupkey when she was looking for her mom in the... F- oh, fuck.
0: <clears throat> it's so... M- Never
1: mind. We've cried a lot.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we bitch. Just a lot. keep naming them. Because there was one in Pee Wee's last time. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. It's just so, so bizarre for me mm-hmm. to grow up one town adjacent from a scooter. Yeah. Again, my parents, my sister work on Scott Air Force Base.
1: Mm-hmm. So you,
0: I I know all. Yeah, like it's so weird to be like, I know mm-hmm. what you're talking about. I know. What yeah, to, like it's so easy, or it's so weird to like sit and mm-hmm. recount these stories. Mm-hmm. Be like, oh okay, like, Florida. Yeah, we, like we all know Florida, but like, mm-hmm. any, but like to have the picture in my brain,
1: and you can see yourself driving through the places because you have, and yeah, oh, I had never heard of this case mm-hmm. before we actually had um thank you shout out to jeff who sent this to us in a uh email jeff mm-hmm. is also a local person and said that his dad used to talk about this case a lot when he was a kid <laughs> he was like no, good you old bedtime that? story yeah um but incredibly incredibly just fascinating from a crime story standpoint and we always like to talk about how part of what draws us to these stories is understanding the relationship dynamics of just everyone involved whether it be Mm -hmm. the victims themselves the victims and their families law enforcement the perpetrator and how it all is woven together in this bizarre dark web and to be able to grieve the ugly things that happen but Mm -hmm. also be moved by the beautiful ways that people support one another and come together and seek justice and that is I think what makes these small town cases so memorable is there is really nothing like the community of a small town and a small town community can be incredibly toxic because everybody knows everybody's business and whatnot but in this case we see how it can be such a good thing mm-hmm. um, in the darkest most horrific of times so yeah hmm. and thank you so much again to the fantastic book bad moon rising by ed morrison with mindy morrison y'all can order this on amazon and i highly highly recommend it because it is a fascinating very well written read and you get a lot of first hand literally like first person account information in real time because eddie was there for quite Mm -hmm. a lot of this so yeah
0: um and there are pictures for people like me. Yes, <laughs> who, yes. There cannot mm-hmm. read books like yes. this necessarily. Like my attention span just mm-hmm. doesn't last. But the yep. pictures are there, mm-hmm. maps and...
1: Oh my gosh, yes. And there are far more pictures than we will share on our Instagram, mm-hmm. but we will. And some of them, I I don't think we will, just out of respect for the family because it do, does include crime scene photos. But mm-hmm. if you want to support this author and buy um, the book, yeah. which, yeah, um, if you want to support a local author, buy Ed Morrison's book. So is there anything else, Caitlin? We don't need to talk about what our next case will be because we'll be bringing you part two of this one next week. No more announcements, no more things like that. We about to be in spooky season,
0: so that's exciting. I'm gonna convince Genevieve to go to a haunted house. Oh my god! And a real haunted house. Aren't there those at the Fright Fest? Baby girl.
1: Oh no! Oh no! We need
0: the real ones.
1: I'll have to wear an adult diaper. (laughs) I'll have to chug a lug whiskey at the door and wear an adult diaper.
0: And I I'm sorry, but I I will laugh oh, in your expense. I'm so
1: sorry. You will I will uh yeah. I will need to have Jacob on one side, Josh on one side, Sam on the other. If Caitlin's in the back, you'll probably just push me into the <laughs> arms of whatever little demon is behind the door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know uh, what, Genevieve? You live on a farm where we both saw I saw a black figure. Oh, you saw a freaking creepy ghost, girl. I did,
1: but I, I believe that she's a, an ambivalent, a happy, I don't know what the a friendly. Fuck I, saw. I didn't
0: like it though. Oh, I didn't like it. We can talk about that on a Friday night. Fright oh yes, episode. we
1: do. Yes, we do. Because we need to give y'all another mm-hmm. one of those. As it happens, it is really difficult to consistently put out two episodes a week, <laughs> and be a full time stay at home parents. Oh fuck! Imagine that. Crazy. But I think we're doing pretty good with one nice chunky episode a week, so. And nice and thick. Mm-hmm. So if you get a Friday Night Frights one, you'll take it
0: and you'll like it. you blessed. <laughs> That's right.
1: Blessed and distressed.
0: <laughs> blessed and stressed.
1: Blessed and stressed.
0: Blessed, stressed, stressed.
1: What was the other thing I said as we were recording? I can't remember.
0: The dropping f bombs like oh yeah, like bird, bird seed, seed at everybody. a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> fuck me, Fuck. Oh. Fuck. Fuck.
1: They say you're not supposed to do that anymore, or bird. was that rice? It's one of those that you're not supposed to throw at a wedding because it's actually bad for birds. It must be rice. It's got to be rice. Yeah, because they eat it and it expands in their stomach or something.
0: Like, oh. I can't imagine bird seed is bad for birds. Yeah. I <laughs> Which circles back. We used to go feed um, the ducks at the Mascuda mm-hmm. um, pond next to the BFW. We would feed them bread, and then oh, learn that like you can't you're feed not supposed ducks to do that bur- or bread.
1: Yeah, I don't think anybody like bird seed is not a thing people do anymore at weddings. Now it's like sparklers, bubbles, honestly, all like, of that cutesy shit. I've
0: never been to a wedding. I honestly like I've never been. I've never heard of birdseed at a wedding. I've heard oh, of yeah? rice.
1: I think that must be... Maybe it's a southern thing. Maybe. Because when I was a kid, there were multiple weddings I went to where they... Uh-uh. We had these little... Um, we were given little, like, mesh baggies mm-hmm. that were, like, tied with a ribbon of birdseed. And then when True. they would come out, you would throw I mean, that, it makes sense. Like, yeah. you're throwing
0: up something that, you know... Just
1: think of how fucking annoying getting birdseed, like, down your boobs of a wedding dress would be i would not
0: a little sneaky snack for later as it <laughs> grooms undressing you <laughs> oh, <God>. uh.
1: <laughs> then it needs to be something better than bird seed like captain crunch or something
0: <laughs> oh oops all fruity, berries fruity
1: pebbles yeah <laughs> <laughs> cinnamon oh,
0: crunch if you can't tell we're a little brain dead so we're gonna yeah. end it <laughs> we're gonna
1: end it catch you back next week Bye. Bye.